Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Later, 
At the time of the wars between Al-Musta'in and Al-Mu'taz, the inhabitants had again to suffer something similar. The vagabonds of the city went again into battle using men as horses. No war was more disastrous for Baghdad, however, than that between Al-Ma'mun and his deposed brother, Al-Amin. And here I've put the... Uh, yeah, I put the Arabic um, in this um, in uh, in this presentation because for who, I, I know not everybody does read Arabic, but I want to highlight this verb, Dakar. Uh, the translation uh, said um, the people of Baghdad didn't know how, uh, where to take refuge. What it says is Dakar Baghdad bi ahliha. Baghdad became too narrow that um, pressed his uh, inhabitants in and they didn't know where to go. Uh, it's, it, it's, very, it's a verb that really makes you claustrophobic. You don't know where to go. There's nobody to, nowhere to take refuge. And the other thing that um, I wanted to... Where is it? I'm gonna take it. It's safer. Okay, so this is the first thing, and the other thing is um, this khuruj. Khuruj al ayarin is kharaja, to go out, to go out in battle, usually. So keep in mind these two, these two words. Then he goes on. And he talks about his own day. And he says, nowadays, the year 943, the inhabitants of Baghdad give great importance to what they suffered when the Caliph al-Muttaqi left them. And before this, the misfortunes that befell them at the hand of the Baridis, Ibn Ra'iq, and Tudun the Turk. They consider a calamity the rebellion of Nasir al-Dawla and his brother, Saif al-Dawla. Now, I'll put the Arabic here as well to show you again this um, word khuruj, uh, to go out. But in this case, it's khuruj abi al anhum. The caliph al muttaqi goes out from them. He leaves them. He abandons them. And then we have another khuruj. Khuruj of all these people, alayhim. So these people, these generals who revolt, who go, who go against the citizens in battle. So I, to me, those of you who read Arabic, I think it may be interested to note these two, um, these two uses of the word. So um, let's have a, a quick look at who I'm talking about. Uh, so we have, this is Harun al-Rashid here. This is the um, foundation of the city by the second caliph, Abbasid Caliph al-Mansur, up here. Then we have Harun al-Rashid, the famous caliph. We don't need to introduce him. His two sons, al-Amin and al-Ma'mun, these are the two involved in the first siege of Baghdad. The second siege is uh, down here. Al-Musta'inna, 
who is um, and Al-Mu'taz is his rival. Okay, and Al-Masudi's time is here. It is Al-Mustaqim, down here. I'll, I'll tell you more just in a, in a moment. But what I want you to highlight in this passage is really a ranking of disasters, a ranking of crisis for the population of Baghdad. What's the worst of the worst for the population up to al-Masudi's own time? So the first one is probably the best known. Uh, the first siege of, of Baghdad is the final phase of the war between al-Amin, the son and successor of Harun al-Rashid, and his brother al-Ma'mun. Uh, the trauma of this conflict largely explains the subsequent crystallization of the long reign of Harun as the golden, golden age, always think it with, in quotes, of the Abbasid Caliphate. Harun is the paradigm of the Caliph, immortalized in the collective memory together with his own Baghdad in the Thousand and One Night. However, the tumultuous years that follow his death are linked to a specific choice by al-Rashid. Uh, uh, in an attempt to avoid the war of succession, he publicly established that after his death, the caliphate would pass to his eldest son, al-Amin. But that during the reign of the latter, his slightly younger second son, al-Ma'mun, would assume control of Khorasan. Um, on Harun's death, in 809, al-Amin did become caliph, uh, and al-Ma'mun did move to Mers, to Khorasan, but there was no agreement on how and to what extent Khorasan should be independent from the capital, especially financially. After two years of negotiations in 811, the military conflict started, and a few months later, Baghdad was put to siege, with, uh, and the siege lasted over a year, and it ended with the deposition and death of Al-Amin. Uh, the passage we've just seen by Al-Mas'udi refers to the months of the siege when Al-Amin, abandoned by the majority of the army, resorted to the civilian population, uh, the Ayarun. It's, it's debatable how we translate this term, the vagabond. Some historians see this episode as a real popular uprising, perhaps the closest thing to a revolution that the first centuries of Islamic history have seen. Um, so the second event, the event that Al-Masodi Al compares with the first, is also a siege, and it takes place about half a century after Al-Ma'mun's victory over Al-Amin. And this is the so-called Samarra period, when uh, uh, the, cal uh, the, la the caliph has his capital, his court, reside in Samarra in the second part of the ninth century. Also in this case, it is a conflict between the ruler and the uh, usurper. The caliph al-Musta'in, strongly opposed by some power groups, does not feel safe in Samarra, and accompanied by his supporters, leaves the city and heads to Baghdad. Uh, the troops left in Samarra choose a new caliph, his cousin al-Mu'taz, and put Baghdad under siege. And the second siege uh, lasts a little less than the first one, a little less than a year. Um, and again, the caliph, gradually abandoned by his troops, uh, rely on the civilian population like, like Al-Amin. And the conclusion is also very similar. 
while Al Amin was killed in Baghdad, Al Musa'in agreed to abdicate and retreat to Medina, but he was arrested and killed before he could reach Medina. Now, the third event. The third event, the one in Masoudi's time, and it says nowadays, it's not, um, although Al Masoudi downplays it a little bit, uh, the issues he alludes to will prove crucial to the fate of the city and of the Abbasids in general. Uh, the events are part of a decade of unrest which will mark in the interpretation of many historians, including modern ones, the definitive end of the Abbasid Caliphate as a political power. Um, the first symbolically significant step in this decade is uh, um, in 1936, the appointment of uh, uh, a certain Ibn Ra'iq as Amir al-Umara, Chief General, General-in-Chief, which means that the Caliph effectively hands this general not only the military authority, and in fact the Caliph is now almost no longer able to say an army under its direct control, but also the civil administration. The Amir al-Umara is responsible for collecting taxes from those provinces that still proclaim themselves faithful to the Caliph. In the following years, many military leaders will compete for the title of Amir al-Umara, some repeatedly, some for a very short time. Um, a certain degree of stability would return only 10 years later, in 946, with the appointment of Ahmad ibn Buya as Amir al-Umara and the beginning of the so-called Buyid century. So the names that al-Maswadi mentions in the passage as rebels are those of the various generals who compete for the title and for the power over this decade. These generals recognize the power of the caliph less and less, only nominally. It is they who select him from among the members of the Abbasid family and they replace him when he tries to escape the control. And in this context, the victim is often the population of Baghdad. The Caliph is no longer able to protect the population. And by the time al-Masoudi is writing, the Caliph al-Mustaqi has left the capital for the second time, leaving the city in the hands of competing military commanders and their troops. He will only return the following year blinded and deposed, or deposed and blinded. Um, most historiographical accounts compiled since the late 10th century describe this period as really a gradual descent into chaos, and they identify it as the beginning of an era of decline for the caliphate, not only politically and economically, but also regarding administrative practices and also regarding culture, cultural production. Al-Maswadi, however, speaks as a contemporary. He's leaving these things. And on the one hand, as a historian, he underlines the importance of a comparative and long-term vision. And on the other, in his presence of, 19, of 943, he implies a certain optimism that the city's current crisis may be just one of many and will soon be overcome. It should also be noted that al-Maswadi's passage implies that the caliph's removal from the capital is at least a sign, if not a cause, of crisis. 
in the eyes of its population. This differs from tradition and from classical doctrine, which indicates amongst the main tasks of the Caliph that of leading the pilgrimage to Mecca and leading the army in the defense of the territory of Islam. However, when al-Maswadi writes, the Caliph uh, has um, no longer has, uh, no longer performed these duties personally. Uh, on the contrary, leaving the capital means losing control of it completely, abandoning the population to the oppression of the general in charge. In other words, in the first two cases, it is a siege, the caliph is pressed in the city, cannot get out and shoot. And in the third case, the caliph is pulled out of the city and should not go out of the city. So, but let's go back where a caliph should be in space. Uh, Al-Masrodi himself, elsewhere, quotes a quote here, uh, by the way, the people who were here two days ago, this is the same passage, the same page in Al-Masrodi where he talks about Zubaydah. He also talks about Harun al-Rashid, who was the husband of Zubaydah. And he says that Harun al-Rashid was scrupulous in fulfilling his duties as a pilgrim in the Hajj and in waging war. He undertook public works. Um, his scattered wealth um, and the treasure of his justice on all his subjects. He strengthened the frontiers. He carried out works of military architecture. He built uh, caravanserais and ribats, and his officials, that's very important, his officials followed his example, and the people imitated his behavior, and then he goes on, error was repressed, the truth reappeared, etc., etc. Uh, note also, this would be, this will come useful later, he was the first among the Abbasid Caliphs to play chess and backgammon. And such was the splendor, wealth, and prosperity of this reign that they called this period the days of the marriage feast. So, to, sum uh, to summarize, the paradigmatic caliph in the Golden Age may be based in the city or not. Harun actually spent most of his time in Bakha, but is present everywhere. He goes on the Hajj. He leads the army, he takes care of public works. However, by the 10th century, it is not conquest that drives the caliph. On the contrary, it is a fight for survival. Nor does the caliph lead his own army. On the contrary, he follows a commander who has momentarily undertaken to protect him. Therefore, he has not only lost his authority, he has lost the ability to negotiate authority. Now, let's go back for a moment to our Abbasid family tree and see what I'm going to concentrate for the rest on for the rest of this lecture. Uh, so we've seen this is Harun al-Rashid. Here is the first siege of Baghdad. Here is the second siege of Baghdad. Here is al-Mustaqi. So we are here. This is al-Muqtadir the beginning of uh, the 10th century, who has, uh, who is succeeded briefly by his brother, and then there are his two sons, al-Radi and al-Muttaqi, in, su in succession. 
Um, so these are the four, um, this is the period. Uh, Al-Muqtadir is the one with the longest reign, and I'm only going to speak briefly about him. The other three, well, Qahir will uh, will not talk about Qahir. Nobody talks about Qahir. He only reigned for two years. He was obviously mad. Uh, he hasn't left much in terms of um, imprint in the culture, apart from being very, um, very um, mad. So, <laughs> I don't know how to say that in English. Anyway, uh, so these are the, the, the two brothers who ruled one after the other that we are going to uh, talk about a, a little bit longer. But let's talk about Al-Muqtadir uh, a little bit. I know there are several partisans of Al-Muqtadir in this room. Um, he reigned, uh, he's famous for a few things. Uh, the first thing is that he was appointed very young. He was the youngest caliph at that point, at 13. Um, he reigned for comparatively long. He was um, very private. He rarely came out of um, what he only came out of Baghdad. Went out of Baghdad on the, the last day of his life because he was killed as soon as uh, as soon as he went out. His caliphate is known as the beginning of the end for the um, political power of the Abbasids. And whose fault is it? It's the women's fault, of course because he, was, he, he obeyed his mother too much. But we, let's not talk about him. Um, let's talk about the manner of Al-Muqtadir's death. death. Al-Muqtadir is uh, facing the rebellion of one of his generals. So he is convinced, he is told by his vizier, please go out and meet the troops, and when they see you, they will bow down to you because they will recognize you as the true, as the true caliph, the true leader. And things do not go exactly as planned. Um, this first uh, arib um, depicts the way the caliph goes out. Uh, he wore a caftan of silver brocade from Tuskar. On his head was a plain black turban and the mantle that had belonged to the prophet was on his shoulders, covering his chest and his back. He was girded with Dulfiqar, the sword of the apostle, with its red leather strap. In his right hand was the seal and the staff of the prophet. Under him was the horse called Al-Iqbal. Uh, on the horse there was a red Maghrebi saddle with new decoration, and under his left thigh was the sword of the Syrup. In front of him rode his son, Abu Ahmad, wearing an embroidered caftan of Byzantine brocade and a white turban, while behind him rode his vizier Al-Fadla ibn Ja'far ibn Al-Furat. In front of them went a white banner and a black flag, and another banner carried by uh, Ahmad ibn Khafib al-Samarqandi. There were also two white standards and two yellow ones carried by the Ansar, who also carried spares with leaves of the Quran on their points. Just imagine what it was like. Kari sets out, it doesn't go as planned. This is the second source that gives us how it ends. Just then, the Berber followers of Mu'amis, who was the rebel general, came up and surrounded Al-Muqtadir. One of them struck him from behind a blow that brought him to the ground. He cried out, curse you, I'm the caliph. 
The Berber said, it's you I'm after. He made the caliph lie on the ground and cut his throat with a sword. The head of al-Muqtadir was raised upon a sword, then upon a stake. He was stripped of his clothing, even his underwear, and left stark naked till a laboring man who passed by covered him with hay and dug a grave for him where he lay, buried him, and obliterated the traces. Now, I will not say anything more about al-Muqtadir, but I will say that if you want to know more about him, there is, um, there is this book published a few years ago, which we wrote together with two of my esteemed colleagues here and another one who is absent. And uh, if you're curious about al-Muqtadir, please. But now, I want to talk about uh, al-Muqtadir's son, al-Radi, who's a very interesting character because he actually goes out, so Al-Muqtadir only goes out on the last day of, of his life. Aradi goes on two journeys. Aradi is a completely different person. He reigns for a much shorter time, just for six, seven years. He's famous, his father was famous for being ignorant. He's famous for being a scholar, um, a very literary person. He wrote poetry, he read, he had always a lot of cultured people around him. He had receptions. He's also the one who appointed the first Amir al-Umara, first general-in-chief. So he was the first one who surrendered hmm, de facto political power to somebody else. He said, I cannot. I cannot deal. My disease cannot deal. And actually, he had five diseases in the space of six years. There were five diseases. That's a lot in comparison with previous years. There were two Amir al-Umara. The first one didn't last very long. He also had two teams of uh, boon companions who he received regularly. We'll see this later. And he went on two journeys, both of them following his Amir al-Umara. And we'll see why. His brother who reigned after him, he reigned for even less. He was deposed and blinded by his own Amir al-Umara, who decided that uh, he was more troubled than he was worth. Um, he wanted no courtiers. He dismissed all the courtiers. He said, my boon companion, my Jalit, is going to be the Quran. I don't want anybody else. But during his only four years of caliphate, he had ten viziers and five Amir al-Umara. It was very unstable. He, not only he couldn't control anything, but nobody could control anything. Now, we have a contemporary source on this, and this is the source I've been working on for the past many years. Um, so before uh, I talk to you about the material, I want to talk about the man, because um, in the case of Asuli, um, it is very difficult to separate the man from the man from his work, also for a lot of modern scholars. So this is a very, um, an early biography of Asuli. Who is he? A literateur, uh, an adib, a zarif, a refined man, a collector of books. He was the table companion of Aradi, having at first been his teacher, and also had been the companion of al-Muqtasi and then al-Muqtadir without a break. His life is too well known for us to be necessary to treat it in great detail. 
He was one of the best of his time at chess and a man of value. And then he gives us his book. Okay, so maybe he was a courtier. Let's see another, another early, uh, slightly later biographer. He was a well-established table companion of the caliphs, having served al-Muqtafi, al-Muqtafi, then al-Aradi, then al-Muqtadi. He was also an equal in his time in the game of chess, to the point that it was said that he was the one who invented it. He had a library which he had devoted to the different books he had collected. He had organized them very well in it. And then a list of his books, of the books he wrote. So was he a chess player? There's another later biography. And I'm sure that some of you know this story. I met many people who believe that this of Suri is the inventor of chess, but this is wrong. It was the Indian Susa Ibn Dahir who invented chess for a king called Chehran. The king said to Susa, request what you wish, and the Susa answered the request that he put a grain of wheat on the first square and then continue doubling its number up to the last square. Whatever amount it reaches, you give it to me. I am sure that several people in this room will know this story and will know how it ends. Well, do you think the king had enough wheat? What do you think? Let's take a poll. I think it's pretty, pretty um, safe to say that the king did not have enough wheat. Hmm? Otherwise, the story wouldn't, wouldn't work. Wait, but the biographies also said that he was a book collector. Let's see what another biography says. I know actually the same. He had a house full of books which he had arranged in rows. Their covers were of different colors. He would say all of these books have been checked and corrected by a teacher. When he needed to consult one of them, he would say, boys, bring me such and such book. And um, of course, not everybody, well, of course this is another common thing that we say that uh, Oral transmission is so much more important than written transmission. Written trans the written word was not trusted um, very much. So there is this, um, this is a short invective poem. Huh? What a sheikh is a soul indeed, library-wise, he's the best there is. When you ask him a question, seeking from him an explanation, he says, quick, boys, bring of science such and such dream. I'm going to try to recite it in Arabic, so please bear with me. Inna maqulu shaykhun a'lamun nasi khizana insa'alnahu bi'ilmin talaban minhu ibana qala yahilmanu hatu rizmat al-ilmi kulana And I apologize. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, so, Asuli is all of these things, but the thing is, he is a scholar, and because he's all of his of these colorful things, we tend to forget that he is a very good scholar, and he is the very, very well placed as a witness to this period that is so difficult to understand because there are so many people going up and down the Tigris. Um, really fighting for each single village, each single town. Um, 
as truly this is the timeline in, in of his life, I'm not going uh, I'm not going to, to go very um, in very much in detail, but you see that it, this this is the caliph. He lives through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten caliphs, of which he was there are news of him at the court of Al Muqtadi of Muqtadid Muqtafi. He was certainly at court Al Muqtadi, he was at court Al-Qahir was mad with or not. Al-Radi, he was a court. And Al-Muttaqi, he was thrown out, not very, um, not very politely. And then went to live in, in Basra. He had access at court uh, for many years in Basra. He decided, and then he worked a little bit, moved around, trying to, to find employment by, um, with the Zamir al-Umara, who also wanted to keep a court. But the problem is, you know, they were here one day, there another day, they died very quickly. So he then did, did, um, retired to Basra, and we have news of him teaching in Basra, and we have stories about him there as well. He died in mysterious circumstances. It's that they say that everybody was out to look, uh, to, um, looking for him because they wanted to kill him, but we don't know why. Um, this is the book that Nadia was talking about, History and Memory uh, in the Abbasid Caliphate. The, the title is very grand, but it's really about Asuri and how, and how um, great of a scholar he was, in my opinion. So I still haven't told you much about his work. Um, his work, he writes on a lot of things. He, he writes on chancery, he writes on chess. He's a, uh, he writes on uh, poetry a lot. He's a, uh, very, he, for example, he's the one who, uh, who edits the um, Diwan of Abu Nuwas, uh, famous poet Abu Nuwas. Or, um, he writes chronicles, but somehow the chronicles are not appreciated uh, very much. They say, well, he likes gossip. He doesn't see um, events in their own greater context. He is too vain. There is too much poetry in his, um, in his work. He's only interested in the petty squabbles between the courtiers at court. So he's a good eyewitness, but he's not a good interpreter of events. Now, I'm going to give you an example, an example of the sort of, uh, of, the sort of information that's looked down upon by historians, mainly even modern historians. This is a story about something happening at court. After the caliph's return from Mosul, we court companions resumed the usual shifts, two groups of four, each two days per week, and shifts just sitting at the caliph's table, keeping the caliph company. The Banul Munajim, however, did not receive gifts. Ahmad ibn Yahya al-Munajim, one of the rival team came not only when it was his turn and he didn't get gifts, but also when it was our turn. Usually he was rejected, but sometimes Radi did not have the heart to deny him access and he joined our group at the table. One day he said, um, I would like to serve your Lordship every day without regular shifts except Wednesdays and Fridays. From then on he began to show up every day and the Caliph asked us to do likewise, so to go every day. 
um, we explained to him that no such thing had ever happened and that our bodies couldn't handle it. We also warned Ahmad to not establish a custom that could be harmful to all of us. But he didn't want to give up, fearing that he would no longer receive gifts if this arrangement changed. Because, of course, um, the Jalis that Boon Companion had uh, a salary, a fixed salary, but a lot of what he earned was also every time he went to court, he would get a present from the caliph, most of the time. Thus, we would go to Arabi and stay until dawn. Then we would leave, and when we returned, the caliph resumed the banquet. As in these occasions he urged us to eat and drink, we had frequent complaints of digestion, and we were not always able to attend. This regime worsened the health of the caliph. God gave us some respite during Ramadan, but when Shawal arrived, we returned to the same system. We all got sick, including me, for many days. After a long illness, which he had deserved, Ahmad died. May God rest his soul the following month. Now, this may well seem gossip, useful. It's useful for the practical details it reveals. Of course, there's a lot of story here. There's a lot of practical things about how the court works, but not for any insight on the part of Asul. However, what is missed is often the remark at the top. Hmm? After the caliph came back from Mosul, this alludes to the second journey of Arabi, which lasted two months. He said that uh, he went on two journeys. Arabi, and now I will tell you a, li a little bit about this, uh, this uh, journey. He sets out towards, uh, towards Mosul, uh, Mosul because um, where uh, Ibn Hamdan, uh, who's one of these generals and who will then become Nasser al-Dawla, had been withholding the revenue, the taxes that he was uh, supposed to send the caliph. The journey, uh, so the, the caliph organized the journey with Bashkam, who um, is by this point has replaced uh, Amir al-Umara and is now himself Amir al-Umara. And the Suli says that despite the advice to the contrary from many parties, Sarabi established that it is absolutely necessary to leave and it is suggested to him that he put his Chamberlain at the head of troops independent from those of the Amir al-Umara and that he keep track of the numbers of soldiers that, uh, of this Amir. Uh, but he follows the first suggestion, but ignores the second. He, he ignores the suggestion to keep in check his Amir al-Umara Bashkam and not let his army become too big. Now, this, disregarding this advice, says Asuli, is one of the faults Arabi had been blamed for. And he also mentions that the population of Baghdad is not happy about the caliphs leaving to confront Ibn Hamdun. Uh, Ibn Hamdan, I'm sorry, as uh, Ibn Hamdan has been generous to the poor of the city in the past, to the poor of Baghdad, sending flour and money in periods of famine, and moreover, his brother Ali, the future Saif al-Dawla, has been active on the Byzantine front, frontier, leading the traditional summer campaign, the Saifa, and other conquests, and in other words, to remember what we were saying before about Harun al-Rashid, he has been, the two brothers have been carrying out the traditional uh, duties of the caliph. 
Um, now, by the time the college starts, the, which includes also the college covers with its um, courses, with school included, uh, by the time they reach Samarra, there's, there's already news of unrest in Baghdad. Um, while from Mosul, Ibn Hamdan, having heard of the expedition, begins to send messages offering conditions which Rasuli considers best, better than expected. So the consensus, says Rasuli, amongst the courtiers, is that the Caliph should stay in Samarra, let Bashkam, the Amir al-Umara, go, go to Mosul, and join him only if strictly necessary. Uh, and in fact, after a few days in Samarra, the courtiers take it in turn to try to persuade the Caliph to go back to Baghdad. Uh, so, just to, this is Baghdad. Here is Samarra. Uh, Samarra is on the east side. Uh, here, the, 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 it's written on the west, but the, the dot is in the east. And here is Mosul, up here. Mm. So they're in Samarra, and they say, go back. Um, so they take it in turn. Here is what uh, Asuli says. Um, Commander of the faithful, the loyal servant, does not conceal from his master anything that is in his art, nor does he store away his advice to him. Likewise, there is nothing wrong for the master in hearing out his servant's voice. If he is right, the caliph will approve, and if he is wrong, he will do as if he has not heard him. The caliph laughs. Tell me what you have. So he goes on to say exactly what we were saying before. Ibn Hamdan is acting, uh, he's performing the duties of the armies of Islam. So uh, he is um, defending Islam and he's um, helping the poor of Baghdad, the poor of the city, and the army you are marching with is doing none of this. They are hired hired um, um, arms. They, they don't deserve you. Uh, they don't deserve to be your army. So he goes, you would do well to accept his proposition and go back to the capital to dispel the fear of revolt of the part, on the part of Ibn Ra'ek because Ibn Ra'ek is left in Baghdad and is, um, you know, is uh, um, not uh, treating the population very well. These and other arguments are futile as the next day the Caliph, the Caliph says, oh yes, yes, that's very interesting, I'll think about it, and the next day um, they leave from, for Mosul. For a few days they stop in Takrit, where the cycle is repeated. There are news of Ibn Ra'iq, the former Amir, gathering troops and followers in Baghdad. The Caliph responds to Asuli. It's significant. He says, Asuli says, so he's in the room with the caliph and the, the chamberlain makes a sign and he goes, um, Commander of the Faithful, Baghdad is the seat of the government, the home of the caliphate. There is no going back if you abandon it. And the caliph goes, it used to be so when the treasury had millions of dinar at the time of Al-Muqtadid and twice as much at the time of Al-Muqtadid. Now that the treasury is empty, it is like any other place. In other words, not only does the Caliph need to move out of Baghdad in order to reach out, to go and, and, you know, and get hold of the revenue that he needs to survive, he does not consider the city worth fighting for, as it is no longer the center of power. 
But there is something more precious than money in Baghdad. The two princes, the caliph's women and the treasure. The other courtiers try to, to, you know, to, to support the story, and then in the end, Abadi snaps. How often you give me advice when I have not asked for it. Your servant is guilty, my lord, but only out of fear for you. I shall not say one more word. And the episode is sealed by a final conversation where Astuli complains to the Chamberlain, you gestured for me to speak and see what you got me into. And the Chamberlain replies that the subject should not be mentioned again. Indeed, the Caliph continues from Mosul and only returns to Baghdad after accepting an unattractive deal within Hamdan. The deal had been much better before, and it, ne- it was negotiated not with him, not with the Caliph, but with the Amir al-Umara. on whom now Aradi is completely dependent financially and so is, has no choice but to accept. And during all this time, the Caliph remains cold with Astuli, overlooking him at receptions in favor of the Munajim rivals. Um, a Qasida where Astuli seeks to get back into the Caliph's graces, go, uh, going as far as praising Bajkam the Amir, um, merely elicits a mild reaction, was almost ignored. Eventually, however, on the eve of his return to the caliph, uh, to, the, to Baghdad, Radi, the caliph, summons Asuli alone and sort of half acknowledges that he should not have gone to Mosul. So now we have the context of the stomachache incident. Yeah? This incident of the stomachache comes after this whole story of this whole trip to Mosul, which was disastrous for the Caliph, and which Astuli knows very well and tells us very well why it was disastrous, disastrous, and why uh, the Caliph shouldn't have done it, and what the financial and also um, political repercussions were. Uh, so let's go back to Masoudi um, for a moment. Masoudi talks about, uh, yeah, I'm almost done, so I'm okay, yeah. So Masoudi talks about Aradi's successor. With Aradi's successor, the al the situation uh, becomes even worse because um, al has to chase, um, is, cha- is, is chased out of Baghdad. He cannot stay in Baghdad because it's not... Um, it is not safe for him. So, not only can he not protect the, pro- uh, the population, but he is not safe himself in Baghdad. And this is what Asuli says. I mean, uh, Asuli is really not happy at all about al Mutaki because al Mutaki didn't want didn't want court companions. Um, so uh, he effectively ended his job at court. But he also um, is against, he says he had really bad advice and he shouldn't have done, he shouldn't have left Baghdad. He says, first of all, he says it is unheard of for a caliph to say, I do not want stable companions as I shall be in the, in, in the company of the Quran, thinking that having the Quran as companion would be a trait peculiar to him, not shared by his predecessors. 
thinking that he was one of a kind, that that idea was incomprehensible to them, and he was the only one who had grasped its value. So he's saying, well, it's not that because you have uh, stable companions, you don't read the Quran. You can do both. Uh, Just being pretentious. And the mistake he makes is also tied to the fact that he has nobody around him who can advise. And what he says is his first senseless, reckless mistake was leaving the seat of his rule and going out when there was no reason compelling him to do that. So, that's the end of all the stories I wanted to tell you about Assouli. Um, just to go back to the, uh, we started with a, with um, with sort of a ranking of catastrophes, ranking of disasters, and I think the um, Al-Masudi and Asuli have this um, idea in common of the centrality of Baghdad, of the importance uh, for the Caliph to be in Baghdad and be the point of reference for uh, the caliphate, and also the importance of the caliph for the inhabitants of Baghdad. Asuli and also al-Masudi spend a lot of time talking about the conditions of the people in Baghdad who really looked after the interests of the people, and this is that really the duty of the caliph, and neglecting this duty will have, um, have grave consequences. Um, Asuli is uh, accused of not having historical sense, not being a real historian, too petty, too concentrated on, on small things. I would say um, something slightly different. I would say the opposite. I, I would say that he's very, uh, he has a lot of historical sense, but that his historical sense is concentrated on Baghdad and on the prosperity of the institution of the caliphate. Whereas the rest of the um, of historians lose interest in Baghdad from this point onwards, lose interest in the caliphate. They're interested in the Omara, in the, in the Seljuks, in, the, in what happens in Egypt, in what happens in other parts of uh, the Islamic world. But, um, but um, there is nobody better, I think, who understands Baghdad and the caliph You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.